Hello and welcome to the Days of Learning podcast. I am your host, David Nelson, and I am just thrilled to have my good friend, Jomar Hooper, join me today. Jomar, welcome. Thank you very much. I could not be happier to be here with you, Dr. Nelson. You know, we were talking before this about how we don't get to catch up, and so we're going to use this time to catch up. Maybe we'll get to a couple of questions, um, but I'm just thrilled to have you on the podcast because I think you have a story to tell and a way of what you do and connect it to the health of the people. So thank you for coming on the Days of Learning podcast. My pleasure. I would not, there's not a better place I'd rather be right now than right here with you. Right on. Well, let me tell you the audience about who you are, because though you and I have a long history, not everybody else does. Jomar Hooper is the executive director of Safe and Sound Incorporated, a nonprofit in Milwaukee dedicated to uniting residents, youth, public safety entities, and community resources to build safe and empowered neighborhoods. In his role, he oversees all organizational strategy and leads the work of a staff that operates in 10 priority neighborhoods in Milwaukee to build partnerships and create opportunities for resident engagement and advancement. Prior to this, Jomar has been with Common Bond, Common Bond Communities. He was also with Milwaukee Public Schools and has done a number of other things within the city of Milwaukee. He is from, uh, he is from Milwaukee and holds a BA in secondary education and a master's degree in public administrations from UW-Milwaukee. That doesn't tell the nearly the story, my friend. You make me sound pretty fancy in that bio, though. <laughs> you are pretty fancy. But I want to start with the question that I start with all of my guests on the show. Joe Mark, tell us your story about how you got to where you are today. Just tell us where you're, tell us a little about, about your backstory. No, absolutely. Um, I'll try not to ramble on too long because I can talk about myself for uh, as long as you would let me sometimes. But, uh, you know, as far as how I got here, uh, you know, I've always, uh, I grew up in Milwaukee. Milwaukee, you know, I've, uh, I'm from Iowa, but I came to Milwaukee when I was about nine or 10. So Milwaukee's my adopted home. Uh, and it's been my home for most of my life um, and all of my adult life. So I really have an affinity for this city. Grew up in the Sherman Park neighborhood where um, got to see a lot of different things in, about the community. Got to grow up in a, a time in the 80s and the 90s where, um, you know, it, it was a little bit different than it was now. So, you know, we it, it, Milwaukee was a little bit different and we've seen some changes both for the positive and for the negative during that time. Um, but just growing up, I got to experience all that Milwaukee allowed me to experience as a student in Milwaukee public schools and eventually continued my journey through UWM as well, too. So, you know, I had a chance to, to uh, go off to college um, in another state for just a, a quick semester, but then I quickly realized that home is Milwaukee and I wanted to be back here uh, to continue my education as well. So one of the things I've always had an interest in is always been, been government policy and how to make my community better. Uh, so as I was uh, an undergrad, I decided that teaching was gonna be the way that I wanted to go uh, to try to impart some knowledge in the next generation, especially around political science and history. Um, but my journey didn't end up that way. I ended up deciding to stay on, get my master's that um, I wanted to 
be a part of improving government, improving public policy, and seeing how I could have an effect there in the community. Uh, so I decided to get my master's in public administration and just proceeded on uh, to working in government for most of my career so far. So I've uh, spent 11 years um, in various levels of government, uh, started at state level of government, working for both WIDA and the uh, Department of Administration, uh, came back to Milwaukee and spent many different roles within the city of Milwaukee. I've been so fortunate to be able to have a wide breadth of experience within the government sphere, working in multiple different departments. I had a chance to work in the budget office, Department of City Development, the Health Department, Department of Administration. So just, you know, uh, Mayor Barrett once said one time that uh, sometimes I fall up the stairs <laughs> and it's been, uh, that's been an experience of mine that I've had a chance. I've, I've been able to see so much that no matter what, I've continued to, to journey up no matter uh, uh, has taken place. And I've, I've been really blessed to have those experiences in my life and thankful that those experiences have shaped me for who I am. Um, I continued my journey after MP, uh, after uh, the city of Milwaukee to moving on to Milwaukee Public Schools, where I was fortunate to work with an outstanding leader, Dr. Darian Driver, who was the superintendent at that time. And uh, we did a lot of great things to try to really impact our students, impact how we can change the narrative around Milwaukee Public Schools. Um, it was one of the toughest experiences, I would say, too. Just, you know, it's hard to go home at night uh, at 4.30 or 5 o'clock thinking when, when, when your students are failing, when you see some of the challenges that our students face. But, you know, it was something that we were really up towards the challenge. Uh, I ran our Department of Business, Community, and Family Partnerships, which was a brand new department, which I created during my time there to try and bring more outside resources uh, and connect partnerships uh, to, the, to the schools, to the principals, to our parents, and to our families to try to get some greater outcomes. Uh, so that was a great experience in my career as well, too. Following that, moved into the uh, nonprofit sphere uh, as the uh, inaugural Wisconsin market leader for Common Bond Communities, which is where me and you have had a lot of contact during my time there. Uh, uh, Common Bond Communities is a regional affordable housing provider with services. So I had the chance to really come in and try to figure out how we can be more in-depth in our work in Wisconsin and how we could really start to affect more and more people uh, during my time there. So that's how do we get more affordable housing locations? How do we get more services to the how do we build more opportunities uh, to spread our message about what quality affordable housing can do? And how do we just coalesce the community around housing and the connections uh, with healthcare and with the connections with just a healthy society as well too. So that was a great opportunity. That opportunity jumped me off and now I'm over here at Safe and Sound where I'm really enjoying myself. I had the uh, fortunate or unfortunate pleasure of starting uh, the second week of March of 2020. And you know, the third week of March is when uh, kind of, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, all hell broke loose and um, the pandemic really, really started to kick up steam. And that's when we started our Stay For At Home order. So it's been a interesting year, almost year to say the least, um, trying to grow, build our organization and just really try to, um, see what we can do for our residents during a pandemic. So that's pretty much, pretty much my journey. I've been fortunate to be uh, on a couple of different boards and be able to serve the community in, in multiple different ways in the educational sector, the social services sector and libraries. So I just I really have a lot of love for this community and I've, it's taken me to a place where I've got to meet some great folks such as yourself and try to make some great connections to get some things done. Oh, thank you, man. And that was, uh, I, I love that, but I'm gonna go back. <laughs> And I, I'm always fascinated by people's perspectives that are different than my own, as we've talked about on many occasions. And being nearly a lifelong resident of Milwaukee, and I've only been here for 14 years now, and so I've seen change, but not to the extent that you've seen change 
and and also you you bring that perspective as being a a black Milwaukeean also to that perspective. Jomar, tell us about your Milwaukee. What do you what do you see from whence you came here as a child to now to a leader in the community? Tell us about your Milwaukee. You know, unfortunately, I think what would sum up what, when you say my Milwaukee, it's a tale of two cities, I think. Um, I, I really feel like from, from the time I've grown to now, um, we've seen uh, a tremendous amount of investment in certain neighborhoods and in certain aspects of life within Milwaukee. And we've seen a tremendous amount of disinvestment and lack of resources in other aspects of Milwaukee life. Um, and by that, uh, you know, when it comes to our downtown area, our east side area, the bay views, the areas such as that, we've seen a tremendous growth in resources being pumped into those areas, new housing, new jobs, opportunities for folks to really advance themselves in those areas. We've seen new buildings come up, we've seen stadiums come up. But then there's a second side of Milwaukee where, we're, you know, in the inner cities of both the north side and the south side, where we're not, where we're seeing companies close, where we're seeing jobs move to the suburbs, where we're seeing a lack of, uh, uh, of quality economic and uh, community investment within those neighborhoods. We're seeing a, a tremendously high concentration of poverty within those neighborhoods, which has yet to divest itself. You know, that's one of our biggest problems of, if, I could, if, if I could really pinpoint something, it's our continuous um, high concentration of poverty within our neighborhoods. And that has not really um, dissipated since the time when I was younger. And I think, think that's a big opportunity which we're missing as a community. So when we talk about my Milwaukee, I think it, it, it really is that two, two tails. I'm able to move into both sectors and see a lot of things. My office is downtown, but then you know I drive through the communities every day where my friends and family live and it's a different story. You know, I'm gonna ask why? It's a good question. Um, very good question. And we know um, a lot of the dynamics of Wisconsin. And, and I think one thing we always, I want to step back a little bit, because when we talk about Milwaukee, we can't talk about Milwaukee in a vacuum. We have to talk about Milwaukee in its context to Wisconsin. Mm. Um, and I think Wisconsin has traditionally been a state that has been adverse to seeing growth in its um, um, minority populations. Um, and by that, we can just look at the map of southeastern Wisconsin and really pinpoint that where we see um, our suburbs are doing really well. We don't have really an opportunity for engagement for minorities within our suburbs. They're uh, primarily white out there. We're one of the most segregated communities. Obviously, you know the stats um, in the nation. We can really look at the map and see our black people live here, brown people live here, white people live here. It's been a really segregated community and it's been segregated. Um, I, I hate to use the term by design, but I think that's been part of what folks in the state, throughout the state, have really wanted, you know, to kind of isolate Milwaukee a little bit, unfortunately. And that's been either by policy, by accident, or by happenstance, that's been what has happened is in, in so much as that the poor people in Milwaukee have been, um, and the low-income folks have been isolated within our community and don't have a chance to really disperse into other areas uh, throughout the community. So again, it's it's a lot of it goes through by policy. A lot of it goes through um, the way zoning is set up in some of our uh, communities around Milwaukee. A lot of it's set up in where the jobs are located. And, you know, there's this term called spatial mismatch, right? We have a lot of poverty in, in Milwaukee, but then we have a lot of jobs out there in the suburbs, but then we don't really have great uh, transit connections to really connect the two. Um, so that's really a humongous mismatch for where uh, we wanna be as a community. So I think just thinking, 
thinking back to where to how we got here, um, a lot of it has to do through policy, both uh, both policy that was designed to be that way, and policy that was just happenstance created these uh, circumstances as well. It sounds like it's because you said that because it we know that Milwaukee is one of the most segregated cities in the world, uh, in the country, if not in the world. Yeah, it might be. But it's also greater than just desegregating that, uh, the, the structure. Is that what you're saying? There's something more to it, this idea of a spatial mismatch, for example. Absolutely. I think if, let's talk about a lot of it's based upon economic opportunity. Right, uh, you know, even when we when I, I worked in affordable housing, and when we talk about affordable housing, right, it's not it's you can look at it from two lenses, right? One lens is that people can't uh, the housing is unaffordable because it costs too much, or housing is unaffordable because people don't have money to be able to pay the price no matter what it is. So I think a big part of it is our lack of economic opportunity for folks to be able to achieve in this region. Um, you know, as I mentioned, when we talk about the spatial mismatch, we have a ton of job openings out in the suburban areas that really don't coincide with folks here. Um, my time at NPS, prime example, um, we dealt with a lot of companies out in Sheboygan who were, wanted to do some recruiting for folks in NPS. Um, they have almost they had almost zero percent unemployment out in Sheboygan, and they really were starving for workers. Um, come down to Milwaukee, we have seven, eight, nine, ten, up to fifteen percent, depending on which community we're in. That's it's just it's telling that the jobs are not where people are, and people are not able to access those jobs. So to me, that lack of economic opportunity is probably the biggest piece that uh, really is, is plaguing us right now. How do we get folks into jobs? How do we ensure they have the education to be able to to, to excel in those jobs? And then how do we get the jobs closer to the people if we can't get the people closer to the jobs? So again, segregation is a big piece of it. But how do we just match that that uh, payment? Uh, to the folks in our community is going to be a big thing we have to try to solve. Well, we've talked about this in other with other guests that, that this is not necessarily one thing. Oh, yeah. um, it's not just racism, but racism is a part of it. It's not just segregation, but segregation is a part of it. I really like what you said. It's not just the idea of uh, housing being un un unaffordable, but it's the economic opportunity in order to pay for that housing. And I would add, and I think you would agree with me, the idea of paying for quality housing. Yes, that's the key. We have, um, there's, a, there's a lot of housing that's available in Milwaukee and in the region. We are an older Rust Belt community, and some of that housing has not been maintained to the point that it needs to be. So that quality housing is is probably the key that we don't talk about enough. You know, I can find an apartment if I really try for $600 in Milwaukee, but what's it going to look like, right? <laughs> it's not going to be up to standard, potentially. It might have issues, and it may not even have a landlord that's going to be able to take care of the place. So quality housing, to me, is one of the big things that we really start needing to talk about more and more in our community. And how do we get resources to either the landlords or to the uh, residents to be able to ensure that uh, housing uh, remains stable and how does it how do we get it to the level of quality that it needs to be you know that's why we're brothers and i'm just telling you straight up <laughs> no doubt <laughs> no doubt so now that we've solved that problem 
<laughs> you got any more problems for us to solve? Oh man, that's you know. Let's, I'll just you and I will just get together, have a podcast, and solve the problems. <laughs> I do believe in that idea of this idea of integration, and I want to go down this path. I love your journey because your journey is similar to mine in in that I've held multiple positions. I've worked in a factory. I'm glad I don't work in a factory any longer. I've worked in fast food. I've worked in a couple of, uh, uh, not couple, many professional positions that allows me to see different perspectives. And your work in MPS and government, uh, Common Bond, and now Safe and Sound, I think gives a, a perspective that you don't have if you only had one of those positions. Do you, do you concur with that? I, I do. It's I, as I mentioned, I've been fortunate to be able to see a lot of things, both good and bad, in my time and in my career, and, and hold a lot of different opportunities. I've I've had a chance to work in a factory back in college as well too, and that's something I hope it was tough for me. Uh, so I, you know, just to be able to start to see grocery store, factory, moving all the way up to being executive director at an organization. I have had a wide breadth and it's really allowed me to really look at problems differently and kind of take a different lens. Um, and I would probably say a multifaceted lens when it comes to figuring out how we can try to make some solutions to the problems that we have in our community. So it's, I've been so fortunate to be able to have that breadth of opportunity. So tell us about Safe and Sound from that perspective of coming into it from the other positions. Tell us about Safe and Sound, what you do, and, and how it fits into this perspective of uh, your Milwaukee. Yeah, well, Safe and Sound is a, it's an organization which I've had some experience with prior to actually being the executive director, worked with them a little bit during my time at NPS. But um, in general, I'm going to talk a little bit about our model. So we have a three-pronged model within each of the neighborhoods. You mentioned that we serve 10 neighborhoods, and in each neighborhood, we have a team of three who, who get uh, really work to achieve our mission, um, which is to create safe spaces and uh, equitable opportunities for our residents. Um, so we have a community organizer who works with our resident, who are, are with our adult residents to try to build block clubs to try to um, just really get folks engaged, try to get as much information out and try to really empower our adult residents to, uh, uh, to, to achieve their best selves and to really just to, to make change in the neighborhood as leaders within the neighborhood. We also have a youth organizer position, which really works to really see how we can get our youth um, moving in the correct direction. So that person either uh, also works with our youth serving agencies and our community groups um, within the neighborhoods, whether that's Silver Spring Neighborhood Center, Boys and Girls Club, COA. We work with those groups as well, too, to really try to get some outcomes, drive some kids into those locations, and then really try to engage the kids who aren't attached to one of the youth centers or the folk or the kids who are who don't have a great relationship with those uh, with adults within the community. So we also do opportunities with NPS as well, too, as one of our partners, uh, which we do work with in our charter schools. And lastly, we have a, a unique position called a neighborhood safety coordinator, uh, which works with public safety resources, uh, such as uh, the uh, community prosecution unit at, uh, at the Milwaukee Police Department. We work with the um, MPD. We work with the uh, um, district attorney's office to really try to get some outcomes for our folks on, the, on a resident level. We wanna be the bridge between the public safety resources and the community. So the folks can come and talk to us if they have any concerns or uh, want to figure out ways uh, to abate nuisances within their neighborhoods or just to really uh, address some of the issues and concerns uh, uh, with public safety within their neighborhood. So we wanna be that bridge as well too. So putting those all three together, we work around this concept of uh, collective efficacy where we really hope to build um, strength in the residents, strength in the neighborhoods and strength in people who live specifically in these areas to be able to make change within our neighborhood. It's all about 
about that resident empowerment. And we try to do that with our youth and with our residents um, through a three faceted approach. We're also moving into a direction right now, which is a little bit different from collective efficacy, um, but you and I know it well, the idea around collective impact. Uh, we really, there's a ton of agencies and groups serving our communities. And as we talked about earlier, there's a significant lack of resources within our communities as well too. So I think we really are fighting and trying to figure out how we, um, how we manage the scarce resources within our community, within all the groups. But I think there's a better way for us. I think we really need to be figuring out how all the groups who are serving residents within these neighborhoods come together, really get all on one accord on one same page. And Safe and Sound really wants to be a part of uh, uh, developing and working with our, our residents and our neighborhoods and our partners to try and develop uh, some collective impact initiatives with on a neighborhood-based level around neighborhood safety. Um, and I think that's gonna be a good area for us so that we can organize our residents, organize our youth, and that we can all, the, the partners can start organizing ourselves as well too to, to better um, use the resources that we have and to attract additional resources to the community as well too. Um, and when we talk about how Safe and Sound fits into Milwaukee, I think we, we fit in so much as that we see uh, the good and the bad of Milwaukee through the 10 neighborhoods which we're in. So we um, have, we're in some neighborhoods that are really struggling. We're in some neighborhoods that they're, that we, that are really thriving at this point in time. Um, and we just really want to make a difference as much as possible to bring additional resources and to empower the folks on the ground uh, to get uh, the resource, to get what's necessary uh, to make change in their community. You know, it makes so much sense. And I wanna unpeel this a little bit. Let's talk about this collective efficacy and then we'll go down to the impact side of it. Take each of the three components because you're really talking about the people, the perceptions, and the environment, right? Let's take the people. Talk about the, 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 the intersection of safe and sound and the people. So I would say it's kind of two two areas I really want to focus on for that. That's a really good question. Um, so I think one of our biggest things is how do we bring the resources to the people? Um, again, sometimes there's a wealth of resources in our community. They're not always getting to where they need to be. Um, someone, one of our employees, Damian Smith, coined the term that Saving Sound is the we're the great hooker upperers. Right, so we want to, we we know what the resource landscape is in Milwaukee. We know who does what, when, where, and how, and it's our job to bring that to our residents. We really want to be able to make those connections so that they have all the knowledge available, they have all these services available, and the ability to really help lift themselves up. And we can uh, make those connections so the the groups can uh, be a part of that too. So we we want to make those connections to be able to, like I said, make folks understand what resources are available and have access to those resources more than anything. So that's probably one of the biggest pieces. And then I think we really just wanna bring a model of how do we um, let folks be empowered within the neighborhood. A good portion of that, a good example of that is block clubs, right? Some folks wanna be involved in, 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 in the neighborhood but don't know a good way to start. If we just start a block club, right? Where you know a, a handful of residents on the block are concerned about the, the neighborhood and want to really see how they can make change, whether that's by doing a neighborhood cleanup or by connecting on a regular basis to talk about what we need and to bring in resources to the community, talk about what's going on up the street and how we can mimic what they have going on that's well and bring to our neighborhood. So in how we can help facilitate those block club conversations. So it's really about just really bringing the resources in and then allowing folks to really uh, take a deep dive into those resources themselves and figure out the best way that they want to change their community. 
So maybe it's, I, I wanna see if you, how you react to this because we can bring resources in, but we also can take the mindset. And I think that what you're saying, I love that phrase, great hooker upper. I'm gonna, I'm gonna borrow that one. You'll have to tell your colleague that if, if, if he or she sees it, you say, Nelson, Nelson stole that from you. It's a form of flattery. Um, resources exist and assets resist, exist in every neighborhood. Yes? Yeah, absolutely. But sometimes people don't realize that, that they have a skill or that orientation that can support the neighborhood. Yep. And so you're striving, I love that word empower, and I wanna, I wanna unpeel that a little bit about a, what that means and how safe and sound facilitates empowerment with the people. How does that, tell us about how that works. It's, you know, it's all about relationships, honestly. Mm. You know, it's about getting to know, we really want to spend time getting to know our residents who we, who we serve. So to me, if, if you know them, if you get to know who their kids are, if you know the kids up the street, if you know what's going on, our, our team really spends time in these neighborhoods trying to get to know the folks, trying to, you know, um, find out what their unique needs are. Because you can't empower somebody who you don't know or understand what they need or, or, or are able to, to, to even comprehend how to meet those needs. So our team really spends a good amount of time getting to make relationships stronger with those folks, building trust within the community. Once we do that, then I think it's, it's, it's a little bit easier on us to be able to say, now we know who you are, what you want, what your motivations are, and what your unique skills and talents are. How do we match those up um, to be able to get some outcomes for you as a community and as a person? So to me, that's the big thing. It's all about relationships. It's all about getting to know somebody on a personal level. And it's all about really spending time trying to figure out how we can make the connection that this person uh, uh, definitely needs. That is that uh, seminal or foundational principle of community engagement that, that I speak of when I do research. Do you think that we are more because, I should ask the question before I go down another path. Do you, th <laughs> do you think we're more isolated now than when we were growing up? Oh, that's no question. That's not a question. And we can point to a multitude of factors. And I think um, one of the big ones is social media, obviously. You know, I, I, I have two teenage daughters and um, they can connect with their friends at any point in time throughout the day with just one click of a button on Snapchat or something like that, you know. So the lack of physical engagement that people uh, have and the lack of connection um, is a little bit different now. So folks are more isolated because they can connect through a 12, through a five and a half inch screen or even like we're doing right now with a computer. This would have been a, we would have been in the same room at a coffee shop, you know, maybe even a month ago, I mean, excuse me, maybe even a year ago or definitely 10 years ago, we would have had to be in the same room having this conversation. So um, to me, I think we are more isolated as a community um, and it's not for the better as well too. And I think we're more isolated too, just because um, economics is playing that way. Uh, folks are a lot busier. Uh, we're, we're in the gig economy as a country as well, too, where folks are working three, four, five different jobs, side hustles everywhere. So I think we have less time to have actual engagement as well, too, which is playing a big part um, in our social isolation as a people. Um, so yeah, there's a ton of concerns about that. And it's, it's one of those things that's going to be hard for us to solve as we move forward. And I only see it getting worse. You know, I, I remember the first time we met, we met over breakfast and, um, you know, you just have to take the time. Yes. You, you have to, you, you're not going to get any more time, but you got to make it a priority. Absolutely. 
And so you would say then that safe and sound makes building relationships a priority. Absolutely. That's the cornerstone of what we do. It's trying to make relationships. And, and, you know, we talk about it on the adult. I just talked about it on the adult side, but the youth side is even more important. Kids won't do anything with you unless they trust you and know you. So that's been a, that's that's what we really do as a group. Um, our youth organizers is really try to form special bonds with our kids and really try to get them to trust us so that we can really try to affect their lives in a positive manner. So 100%, I think we really spend a lot of our time just in a relationship basis, trying to build quality conversations. You know, you have teenage daughters and I know teenagers and they don't want anything to do with us. But you know, when they turn 20, we have a mutual friend whose daughter, who I used to follow in volleyball, is now reached out to me for, so you know that we're getting older and the teenagers suddenly say, hey, can I, can I tap into your network, which is rather funny. And so th there's hope for us yet. <laughs> well, I hope I, my daughter just turned 19 last week. So I got one more year into that. Habit. You got one more year. Right, right now, she's like, yeah, we'll talk to you later. Yeah, so. yeah later, dad. <laughs> it, it's always funny. I had a conversation the other day. I was like, well, you know, when they're young, they're always begging you to play Barbies and stuff like that. And I'm like, okay, I'm just trying to watch the game or do whatever. I don't have time to play Barbies. Now I would, now I'm like, Hey guys, do you want to spend some time playing some games with me? And they're you, like, you want to, oh, you want to play Barbies? That would be cool. Exactly. <laughs> Battleship or something. But. Exactly. But the idea of, I want to have you tell me because, you know, we can talk theoretical and, and you and I have done that too. We've, We've solved the economic problems already. But give me an example from your work at Safe and Sound about how building a relationship has resulted in success. I would say this summer, um, we have a youth organizer, Ashley Campbell. She's, all, she's, she's amazing. And her primary area, she works with in Thurston Woods and she works in the West Lawn community. As you know, West Lawn is the largest, um, I hate the term, but housing project mm -hmm. that we have in the state. So Ashley's role is to see how she can really do some engagement with the youth in West Lawn and Thurston Woods. This summer, she had a bright idea. She had a great idea about how we can engage the youth by doing kind of a youth summer camp, you know, trying to be as safe as possible. Kids are all in the house. It's COVID. How do we get them outside in the fresh air, masked up so that they really can have some engagement? So Ashley really spent a ton of time with the kids who were outside just going, hey, guys, let's talk. You know, let's figure out how we what, what are you looking for? Are you guys? What, what, what's going on with you right now? She found out that they're just bored. <laughs> a lot of kids in, in West Long were extremely bored this, this summer because there wasn't a lot of things for them to do in general in Milwaukee. But now with COVID, there's even less things for them to do. So I actually really spent some time bonding with those kids on outside, talking with them, talking about their needs. Then was able to set up um, kind of a, a felt like a month long, but it may have been a little bit shorter, uh, list of activities to really get the youth engaged in West Lawn and also in collaboration with the Silver Spring Neighborhood Center. So we ended up getting yoga opportunities for the kids, flag football safely. Um, we had opportunity for kids to uh, get some educational opportunities this summer. So all that stemmed from they trust her. They were like, you know, we trust Miss Ashley. So how can we, we so we want to be a part of the activities that she's presenting to us. And we don't think that it's lame or something not to do. We're, we told her what we needed. She brought us what we needed. And now we're going to really engage with her. And during that time, she's able to ensure that they're safe, number one. Um, the neighborhood is safe during that time as well, too. And she's able to bring additional resources to the community as well. So all that combined is started from her building relationships with these youth they're starting to trust her and then them being able to engage with her on a consistent basis. These inputs, 
that you're talking about, this trust building. What does it mean for the neighborhood? I, I wanna go down this path. So talk about this idea of building relationships within the physical environment of the neighborhoods. What is that model that safe and self, safe and sound has and how does it work? I say, um, you know, just, it's all about, you know, residents really want to know that they have a trusted resource. Like I've mentioned trust a couple of times. And I think that that's one of the most important things. What, as you mentioned, there are resources available in the neighborhoods and throughout the community. Um, but I think folks really have a hard time navigating um, what the co complex web of resources looks like. Um, I'm just gonna give a prime example of, let's say if, if for housing resources, right? Even during the pandemic when eviction resources were available and are still available, there are three different organizations who were uh, responsible for giving that out. And it could be hard for a specific person to figure out which organization do I go to? What day are they open? Which entity do I go to? So having someone that you trust and have a relationship with that can guide you in the right direction or just give you a head start and say, yeah, go talk to them. They're open at Tuesdays at seven to nine. You need to be in line early to make that happen. That's something that folks truly need for advancement. Um, I've kind of, it's kind of almost like a case management model, but not case management where folks have a case manager, someone who they can talk to, to really um, be able to help them. You know, this was the model that uh, in my time at Common Bond that I really um, started to really coalesce around and, and, and so much as that we had uh, uh, kind of uh, coordinators on site at the affordable housing locations to be able to answer questions and direct folks to resources. And it was solely needed. So just building, having an affordable housing location is one thing, but then having resource a, a resource provider on site to be able to make the connection for what you need specifically as a person is invaluable. And I think that's kind of the role that Safe in Town wants to play within these neighborhoods as well too, both with our community organizers and neighborhood safety coordinators and youth organizers. What does that mean to the people of that neighborhood then when you can do that navigation and or case management? It really means that they're never alone, honestly. Mm. You know, we talked about the isolation. We It, it means that if they, if, they, if they're struggling with something, if they're having an issue with something, if they need something, that they have somebody to turn to and talk to and try to find out how to help them navigate the scenario. Now, obviously we're not licensed professional counselors or anything, but we know, we, we know resources we can attend them to at the county, right? You know, we, we, we were able to connect resources around suicide prevention. We're able to connect resources around mental health, around, house, around housing access, housing stability, around eviction, around food, around uh, access to, uh, to nutritious food. So to me, I think it's all about, you know, it means to the folks that, they, that they're never alone, that they have an opportunity, whatever it is they need to connect with someone um, on an individual level to try to help them navigate those needs. We may not be able to, to really specifically get you what you need, but we can try to figure out what resources out there to make that connection. Well, I've always said, and in the work that I do around homelessness, that I can't take everybody home and I can't, I can't make you not be homeless. But we have a saying and we have a saying of bearing witness to be able to to be able to to just say, hey, I, I don't know what we're going to do, but we're going to do it together. That's a, that's exact. I love that. I love that. I don't know what we're going to do, but we're going to do it together. That's that really, I'm going to steal that one. Now, if you, since you stole the other thing, I'm going to steal that one. Um, because again, like you said, there's, we can help them figure it out. 
you know, we we have the resources, we have the access as, as, as community groups. And like you said, I've seen your work multiple times with the homeless and you guys do an amazing job. And like you said, we may not know the exact resource at that moment, but we can help try to figure it out together. You know, and I think that goes with the idea that we're more alike than we are dissimilar. Um, and I don't know what it's like to be, um, to be black and you don't know what it's like to be white, but it's this idea of when we spend time together, I can bear witness to some of the, the challenges that you have and the same thing, the things that I have. And that's what, you know, that's what friends do for one another. When you apply this model of residence, neighborhood and safety, what happens in the neighborhood? Tell me that story. Yeah. Um, well, I, it really, I'm trying to get the right words here, but I, I think that uh, it really allows for residents to really have an opportunity to, to really look, to kind of evaluate the neighborhood and try to start thinking about ways that they could really um, make a greater impact within their neighborhood as well too. Um, prime example, I mentioned the block clubs earlier. So that gives folks a chance to coalesce together, get into the same room, have a conversation and talk about the, the overall, um, what's going on in their neighborhoods, how it's moving and how that, uh, what resources are missing, what are the gaps and how um, they can play a part in bringing uh, those resources to the forefront and making the connections to make their neighborhood better. But there's one thing I really wanna talk about too, which is I don't wanna go for too much of a tangent, but um, you know, the residents are not all, it's not their responsibility 100% to try to make the neighborhood better because they didn't make the neighborhood in the condition that it is currently. So I think we also need to recognize too that there's a, a responsibility on society, on the, the groups who are serving the neighborhoods, on, on the government to really play a part in uh, elevating the neighborhoods as well too. And I think um, once residents have identified, have, empower, have been empowered to identify what it is that their neighborhood needs, how they need it and why they need it, then it's on groups like Safe and Sound and others to carry that message back to the folks who have the resources and who are partially responsible for making some of the uh, poor decisions that have led um, to the uh, deterioration of our neighborhoods and the current conditions that folks are in so that we can carry that message back to them to try to get those additional resources back to where, to where they're in there. That's why we talk about um, one of the big things I've really been excited about is how we marry the idea of collective efficacy, which is that first part with the idea of collective impact, how we get more folks really attached to our neighborhoods to be able to bring in more resources to get things done as a group within these specific communities. You know, it's, it's this idea of coalescing together yeah. Because you know what, I can't make somebody plow my streets. I, I was frustrated at a, a major crosswalk that it wasn't uh, it wasn't shoveled, and I was walking my dogs, and I complained to my older person, and I complained to mm -hmm. uh, the to the city, and nothing was done. It would be nice to say, "Hey, Jomar, who do I call for this?" Right, and, and, and to say, "Oh yeah, he's a friend of mine." Uh, here or that's not the right person, Nelson. You're calling the wrong person. And, and so to have that coalescing together to say I can't do all of this on my own, but to do it, this idea of um, collective impact uh, really does mean that people can have their voice heard and their concerns heard. Yep. Absolutely, I love that's that's probably a perfect analogy. And I'm going to steal that one too, just so you're aware. Right. Um, but just being able to talk about, you know. I, identifying what the problem was, 
not knowing the correct resource, but knowing having somebody to be able to connect you with that correct resource is 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 pertinent. That's so that pertinent. idea of that idea of navigation. And look at us. We've gotten to one question. <laughs> <laughs> you said that too. <laughs> I knew we were gonna do this. Imagine that. I wanna ask because it's an important one for me. This model of 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 efficacy and collective impact with residents, neighborhoods, and safety, how does it contribute to the health of individuals and of the neighborhood? Yeah, um, I, I think it goes back to everything we've been talking about. And one of the pieces is that access. You know, I think we have a wealth of, of, of access, uh, of, of health options, health resources within our community. We have Medical College, Freighter, Aurora, you know, uh, um, the Sinai group, um, Wheaton, there's a ton of resources, but I think it all boils down to access. So how do we ensure that the folks who need those resources are getting those resources? I look at prime example is our, uh, our lack of primary care. That's one of the big things right now that I'm really, it's always frustrating me in our community is that um, oftentimes folks use emergency care as primary care. So, you know, how do we have an opportunity to really um, let folks understand what resources are, are out there for primary care and to be able to access those. So again, that's that part where we're the great hooker uppers, right? Where we can talk to folks like you from MCW. I had a, another conversation with a couple of your colleagues yesterday, uh, last week, uh, and we were talking about how do we get more information out there about the COVID vaccine? You know, folks in our communities we serve, some of them are a little gun shy about, um, and rightfully so, about uh, taking a vaccine, um, knowing America's history around, um, how that uh, healthcare has really not had uh, the greatest effect on uh, the African-American community. Um, so, but how do we get information out there? And a lot of those folks don't have a primary care physician that they can bounce off these ideas and talk to uh, about these issues and concerns as well about the vaccine. So how do we get more information out there? So I think that model that we have in the community is really just about how do we get freighter deeper in the community? How do we get Aurora deeper in the community? How do we get MCW deeper in the community making those connections for our residents? To me, that's how we play that part. It's all about that access, having the residents understand that this is the way to go. They have that access to the residents and we can point you in the, excuse me, in the right direction for those resources. Is it again back to developing trust? I, I would say so, because um, a lot of the message, is, a lot of it is about the messenger, right? So um, if we have trust in our, in our neighborhoods and folks trust us as safe and sound, the message might come across a little smoother um, than somebody from uh, a random person from Freighter or MCW coming into the community having this conversation. But if the community conversation is facilitated through a group such as Safe and Sound or one of our partners, then obviously it makes it a lot smoother. It's kind of like the, uh, the analogy about a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. You know, if you're going to get, you, you need the medicine, but if you can take it with a spoonful of sugar, it probably makes it a little more palatable to you and you're going to be uh, more excited about taking that medicine next time. So what would work? And I, and I want to talk about this. We are sponsored in part by a grant that is trying to prevent type 2 diabetes, which is very common in black and brown neighborhoods, and hypertension and cardiovascular issues, which again are higher in black and brown communities they are in white communities. This idea of how do you envision that happening? This idea of building that trusting relationship for that deeper um, connection into the neighborhoods? 
Yeah. Um, so I look at it as it's all about, we talk about relationship building. It's how do we do that on the, on the, um, the group level as well, too. So I think we have an amazing amount of grassroots organizations within our neighborhoods who are doing great work on a very consistent basis with our residents who know the residents who have trust. Um, Safe and Sound is not a grassroots organization, but we work with a ton of grassroots folks within those 10 neighborhoods who really have a strong ear to the residents. We have a strong ear as well, but they, they are in the, in the neighborhoods doing that work. So I think it's how do we make the connection between the grassroots groups the Safe and Sounds who are doing a little bit more of the community-wide work, and then some of the big guys such as yourself at MCW who really have the resources and the knowledge to get to the community. I think it's all about us getting into a room, being able to coalesce around agendas, goals, ideas, quality, and consistent communication, and then being able to make plans to do, be able to do that outreach. Because if we, again, if it's MCW or if it's a, one of the big guys coming in having these conversations, it's different than MCW and Safe and Sound and MCW Safe and Sound and folks from the Silver Spring Neighborhood Center having this conversation. So to me, it's all about how do we all come together, break down those silos as groups, and how are we able to come and speak from one voice and one accord? To me, that's gonna be the most important piece. So in part, it sounds like, and let's be clear, I'm a, I'm a little guy in this organization, so. I, <laughs> you have a big heart though, so that's what we're uh, You know what, I think a big heart makes up for the lack of positionality in this space, but um, breaking down silos. It really means spending time together, right? To, to listen to those needs of that, that neighborhood and community. And perhaps, having the navigation, the navigation points, the access points about how people can get the care that they need. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and you know, we, it's, it's not rocket science at all. Again, like you said, it's about getting into a room, having these conversations and figuring it out. I mean, you have been a part of this work in the past when on the eviction work, right? You know, we, we looked at an issue, we identified it, we got everybody who um, is attached to this in a room started to have conversations, had consistent communication. And look, a couple of years later, now we have a rental housing resource center. That's yeah, really we do. great things to, to really, uh, for our residents and it's, a, it is an opportunity for them uh, to get resources. So as you mentioned, it's, it's, not, it's not brain surgery, it's not rocket science, it's us getting into a room, having these conversations, setting an agenda, setting goals and having consistent communication on a regular basis. That way it'll allow us all to be able to talk to our residents, to be able to have them funnel up what their needs are. And we'll know them on a consistent basis because we're gonna be in those neighborhoods having those conversations. I assume that health and healthcare access, especially at the primary care level is an important consideration for all your neighborhoods. Is that correct? No question, absolutely. What would you want the health systems to know about your neighborhoods and the role that Safe and Sound can play in this getting into the room together? I would say that, that Jomar Hooper as a 41-year-old executive director of an organization sometimes has trouble navigating the healthcare system. <laughs> so what does that tell you about a 21-year-old newly in the workforce in our one of our uh, prime neighborhoods in Thurston Woods trying to figure out how do I get a primary care physician? What's, what's in network? What's out of network? Who do I go to to talk to if I have a bump or bruise on my leg? It's a, such a confusing world when it comes to healthcare and when it comes to figuring out how to navigate those scenarios. So I think how do, I think really just getting the information as simple 
and as easy as possible to the recipient is going to be the most important thing. And I think we really need to figure out how to get that information down through our groups, down through conversations on Zooms, Facebooks, whatever, bring the information to the people the way that's easiest for them to, uh, uh, to understand and to be able to respond to the information. You know, maybe react to this. I'm gonna gonna say this. Maybe it means this idea of having someone from the health system come into the neighborhoods to help navigate those access points. Absolutely, absolutely. I think there has been models of that happening in in, in Milwaukee, but I think it needs to be much, much more. You know, I think there's opportunities to to, to strengthen that, to deepen that. Obviously, resources are always a consideration, but I think there's so much opportunity for us to be able to have our health systems, our health insurance systems, number one as well, too. That's an area that really does not happen as much as need be as well, too, um, outside of just our healthcare providers. How do we get our insurances uh, companies to be able to be a part of those conversations and that navigation as well, too? So if we had resources that can help people navigate, say, around uh, diabetes education or, or hypertension, blood pressure monitoring, you believe that the neighborhoods would take advantage of this? Absolutely. And we've seen that on some, um, some scale. I saw that at my time during Common Bond when we had um, healthy cooking classes uh, offered, folks took advantage of it. When we had information sessions about certain things, blood pressure screenings, folks came to those opportunities. Um, and we're able to get that, that information. Um, I am type two diabetic myself, uh, Dr. Nelson. So, you know, if I would uh, have had some information back in my younger days to not eat that double whopper <laughs> at the specific time or to take better care of my health, you know, that might have made a difference in myself becoming type two diabetic in my twenties when I had, when I did become that. But, you know, again, access to information that you have in front of you. And what would you want the neighborhoods on the other side to know about safe and sound and that access to care. How can safe and sound, which is primarily thought of as a neighborhood thing, mm -hmm. a program to be thought of as an health access tool as well? Well, I, I would want residents to understand that we have, we have three folks in the neighborhood that are specifically there to answer the questions, to be attuned to their needs and to help them advance in their lives, their careers and whatever, however we can to build safe neighborhoods. Safe neighborhoods to us has the broadest definition possible because safety in a neighborhood is predicated on so many other conditions um, just besides public safety. Again, it's housing, it's healthcare, it's economic and community development. All those pieces make a healthy neighborhood and that's our mission. So I would want folks to understand that you know, we are there, we can make those connections. If we don't know it, we will find out and we will bring that resources to the community. And we just really wanna do our part um, to really be that access point to others um, around a multitude of issues. Again, my staff is not classically trained around what healthcare is, but we know folks who are, and we can bring those connections to the table. It gets my mind going in a whole bunch of directions. I gotta ask you. That's trouble, though. I don't know. Yeah, it's trouble for you. Know, it's like, wait a minute. Let's 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 stick to the script, Nelson. Um, <laughs> when you talk about safe and sound, and housing in neighborhoods, tell me what you think of when you say, "How does housing and health go together?" That's that's housing and health really are like peanut butter and jelly if you think about it. You know, think about this. For, think about this one. This is something that I've, I've that I know you struggle with on a consistent basis. During the pandemic, we've heard on a consistent basis, um, we need everybody to stay at home for the health of the community. 
Think about that. So obviously health and health and housing really plays a solid connection there. But then on the opposite side, in the work that you do and you've seen with the homeless, what if you don't have a home to go to to be safe in? Um, how does what? How are you uh, going to uh, stay safe as a community? How are you going to stay safe as a person? How are you going to stay safe as a family if you don't have that home? So to me, when we talk about how housing and healthcare really intersects, it's primary. It's it's the basic primary first step that folks need to really be um, their best selves when it comes to their health. We've seen numerous studies that folks with asthma or folks who visit the uh, the emergency room on a consistent basis, um, when they are able to have consistent steady long-term housing, their health gets better. Their, their lack of needing to go to the emergency room on a continuous basis goes down. Um, and they're able to start really thinking about things. It's kind of the whole premise of that housing first model where it's just, let's get housing first, let's get you housed. And then we can figure out how to address your mental health, your social health and your actual body health as well too, once we get you in a housing. So to me, it's the basic starting block of everything. You can't, you can't win a hundred meter dash unless you get to the starting block. And that, that housing piece is that starting block for winning that race. I'm going to steal that one from you. <laughs> I'm, glad you're, I'm glad we're recording so we can go back. That's exactly right. <laughs> Tell me what happens when you don't have that. What have you seen in your time at Safe and Sound? And I'm going to even go a little bit further back, not even my time at Safe and Sound, just my time in the community. I've seen so much. One of the things that has that really bugged me, and, and I don't think people know this is a thing, is that MPS has a department specifically for uh, homeless children. Like they have staff dedicated to nothing but trying to meet the needs of, of youth who are homeless. And we know that those kids are starting, you know, we start talking about that starting block, you know, they're starting from 200 yards away in the 100 meter dash, you know, they're not able to get quality night's sleep, they're not able to oftentimes get food in their stomach, and they're starting, how do you, how do you come to class at 8am when you were sleeping in the car, like, just think about that, like, you're, you're starting from scratch every single day, not having an opportunity to be on the same footing as the rest of your classmates, and you know you're going to fall behind. So, you know, to me, that's one of the things I always like to highlight is that educational opportunities and, and the lack of attainment for kids and families who are consistently moving around, don't have a solid home, don't have a solid place to stay. We just know that it affects you on so many levels, and it really do, does not allow you to get a head start in life. Many of us in our in the African-American community and, and in the, the minority community, we are we're starting from behind anyway. So how do we get, you know, not having access to safe, affordable housing really is putting you even farther behind uh, the starting gun. I'm very limited in my lack of words. I'm often, I have more than enough to say, but I am struck by the image of a child having to wake up in their car and then go to school. Yeah, it's, it's, it's disheartening. And we know thousands upon thousands of our children in Milwaukee are experiencing similar stories on a daily basis before and now during the pandemic. So Safe and Sound spends time and sees those children and sees those cars. Yeah. And, and you get to know the individuals and rather than blame, it becomes of how can we do this together? 
Yeah, and I think we need more of that. I think we need more of that as a community. How do we really figure out how to attack this problem? How are we able to, to recognize what's going on and get those resources to folks that are necessary? And you know, I think there's a lot of people thinking about this work and a lot of people working in this area, but there so, needs to be so much more done for our community around this housing aspect. Um, we do have a tremendous lack of affordable housing within the community. We have a lack of quality affordable housing, number one, and then there's just a lack of affordable housing in general. Um, a stat that always jumped out to me is that um, over 40% of uh, uh, renters in Milwaukee County earn less than $25,000 a year. And think about, um, and then I think that the, the, the amount is less than 10% of apartments in Milwaukee are affordable to people who make less than $25,000 a year. So we have 42, 40, over 40% of people can only afford not less than 10% of the apartments that are available. I can't even do the math. It's yeah. a lot. That's a, that's a lot. It's a and lot. It's, and it's frankly, it's unsustainable. And, and then when you add to the fact that of that $25,000, $25, they're paying 60 to 70%. It doesn't leave a lot left over. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. If you're paying 50% and you're making a hundred or $150,000, it's a different story than $25,000 of, of, of that same amount. That's why it's been mind boggling to hear these conversations out of Washington about $600 versus $1,200 versus $2,000 when folks are being evicted over $300 right now and that $1,200 and that $600 would make a humongous difference six months ago, right? Or when, um, you know, that $600 is a difference between getting a wisdom tooth fix that it's been hurting you on a consistent basis for the last year or putting uh, gas in your car to get to work. It's just, it's mind boggling the things we argue about in this country sometimes. The asset side of it then, and I want to have you go here before we start to wind down, is that idea of a collective impact? Yes, because you don't have to know, you know housing, but you don't have to know housing in order to support safe and sound housing, safe and sound healthcare, safe and sound education, right? And, and so how then, how do we build that model of collective impact Versus, I'm going to say this, individual scarcity, which is often where we go from. Yeah. So to me, it's all about a willingness of everyone to be able to work together. You know, we have this idea that scarcity mindset is what we work off of consistently. Like, well, if I don't go get it, then, you know, I, I don't want them to get it. I need to get it first so that I can do my thing better than you can do it. So I think as a community, we need to start looking on the individual neighborhood level. What are the resources that are there? We know that this organization does this, this organization does that, this organization does that. And let's all get in the room. Instead of we're all moving, we're all going this way, right? Everybody's moving, but they're moving this way. How do we all just get in line and move forward? Each staying in our own lane, but being able to really just identify the things that we, that our residents are telling us they need, but to be able to be more coordinated in that mindset so that I can just, if, if need be, you can hop over this way and start doing work more resources are going to come into our neighborhoods from that specific mindset than that scarcity mindset of silo nature that we have right now. So to me, again, it's about relationships between organizations. It's about us getting into a room. It's about us listening, number one, listening to the residents, knowing what they need, and then moving forward in one concerted method uh, to address what those residents are telling us they need. Man, I'm all in. Definitely. We have to be, you know, I, uh, one of the things I, you know, if, if I ever get another job and somebody asks me, what's my weakness is patience. 
<laughs> you know, uh, they, they ask, you know, that's that's probably the prime job, job question on job applications. What's your what's your uh, your weakness? Is patience. I don't I don't really have patience for uh, for lack of work in our community anymore. I think we we have to have a sense of urgency. We have to get this work done because we've had patience for fifty years. And where has that gotten us? Yeah, we could kid about that. And I know that you are not the most patient person, though you are a, you are a very uh, gentle and impatience doesn't mean that you're not a lack of caring, but I heard this recently and I think you would concur with this is that people are dying every day yeah. and, and it doesn't need to be. And so we need to have impatience with the resources to prevent unnecessary death and morbidity. Absolutely. And we're seeing this play out exactly like we like you just mentioned with the with COVID right now you know we've had we've had the ability as a country to address this a long time ago we just haven't had the will as a nation and we're seeing it with kind of the some of the troubles we're having with this vaccine you know as far as folks needing if we get this rolled out as soon as possible to get the herd immunity but we're having some trouble as a state and as a community rolling this out as fast as possible we need to have that sense of urgency as you mentioned people are dying every day so I know people will be jazzed about this podcast, uh, but how do people get in touch with Safe and Sound and get involved? Safe and Sound, please uh, follow us on our website. We're on all social media as well too, but our website is www.safesound.org, www.safesound.org. Um, my email address is jomar, J-O-E-M-A-R, at safesound.org. Um, please Get a, get a hold of me. I'd love to talk with anybody about anything. And I love to make connections so that we can make our neighborhoods and communities better. I love your passion and enthusiasm for life and for your just your commitment to the neighborhoods and to justice. Is there anything else you want our listen, listeners to know at this time? Yeah, that Milwaukee has so much promise. There's so many great people on the neighborhood level doing so many great work. Our block watch captains, our folks who are really um, our, our youth who really care about it. We have youth councils in Harambe neighborhood and Armani neighborhood and the Westlawn neighborhood. We have amazing youth, amazing residents who are doing great things. And we, we need to all coalesce around each other to be able to support the work that they're doing to, in order to help them uh, make our communities better. Fantastic. We could talk for another hour, but I know that you have uh, other meetings to go to. Uh, Jomar Hooper, you are a, a a scholar and a gentleman, and I am so indebted to you and your commitment to health and to community success. Uh, continued health and good wishes, and thank you for uh, coming on the show today. Dr. Nelson, thank you so much for the kind words. Um, I, I'll, I'll send your check in the mail for that, um, and just thank you for the uh, the invite. This was a great conversation, and then I love, I can, we, like you mentioned, we can talk about health, housing, safety all day, but I really appreciate you being able to allow me on to have this conversation. Thanks so much. Take care. What a great conversation. I just am so thrilled about the work that Jomar Hooper and Safe and Sound is engaged with. You know, we talked about this idea of trust building and getting into the neighborhoods. It's the only way that you better understand the needs of the people. The idea that we build relationships one person at a time, spending time in the neighborhoods, walking the neighborhoods in order to better understand what's going on. He talked about residents, he talked about the neighborhood, the built environment, and he talked about being that feeling of safety. 
But I also will say that it was important for him to think about the and speak of the idea of coalescing together because you don't have to have an understanding of all the issues in order to better connect people to those issues. So this idea of navigation is important and how primary care can do a better job of putting people into the neighborhoods in order to have people to have access from the neighborhoods. I hope you've enjoyed this, this time together today. I'm your host, David Nelson, and thank you for joining us on the Days of Learning podcast. Good day and be well.